Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings at the U.S. Naval Institute. Today is Tuesday, November 14th, 2023. Good as always to have you on board, everybody. Today's show is brought to you by Blue Cross Blue Shield. It's true what they say. A good smile is irresistible. In fact, I can't help myself from smiling right now. That's because I have Blue Cross Blue Shield FEP Dental. I pay no deductible for in-network services like fillings and root canals. Plus, my in-network preventive care is fully covered, including three cleanings a year. See what we can do for you at bcbsfepdental.com. Okay, before I introduce today's guests, I have to mention some sad news for the Naval Institute and for the Navy writ large and actually for the, the entire nation uh, over the, the weekend, we found out that uh, longtime proceedings contributor and uh, explorer, oceanographer, uh, and just good all around guy, Captain Don Walsh, Naval Academy graduate from the class of 1954 and a submariner, passed away. Uh, Don Walsh was 92 years old, so he lived a very long, incredibly full life. And he was best known for his journey to the deepest place in the world ocean, Challenger Deep in the Mariana Trench in January 1960. He made that journey with Jacques, uh, sorry, Jacques Picard in the Bathyscaphe Trieste, which if you've ever been to the US Navy's museum at the Washington Navy Yard, you can see the Trieste Bathyscaphe, very Rube Goldberg kind of contraption. And if, uh, if anybody uh, asked me to trap myself in it and go 35,000 feet down in the world ocean, I would you know, tell them that they were crazy. But in 1997, uh, Don started the Oceans column for proceedings because, as he told me in person, he believed naval officers had a good grasp of naval operations and tactics, but they lacked fundamental knowledge about the ocean itself. Don was a joy to work with, always full of the very best sea stories, including talking about his trips to explore the Titanic and the German battleship Bismarck on uh, Russian deep submersible Mir back in the 1990s. Our colleagues at USNI News published a fitting obituary for Don yesterday. You can find it by searching Don Walsh, USNI News, and it will come right up. Just want to wish fair winds, shipmate, following seas. It was a pleasure to serve with you in a minor capacity uh, in all that you did for the Navy and for the nation. Okay, now let me get to our, our guest today. Uh, joining us from Okinawa where it is ODARK 30 right now, is Major Chris Denzel, United States Marine Corps. He's the author of a very thought-provoking article in the November proceedings. It is titled, Maneuver Warfare is Just Operational Art. It's in the November issue, starting on pages 38 and 39, if you've got the, uh, the print issue with you. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks, Bill. It's a real pleasure to be here. I'm a, I'm uh, so a, I just I got to start out by asking because we you know the title of your article is uh, maneuver warfare is just operational art and often when you use that uh, the word just that can that can get people's hackles up. So what kinds of feedback are you are you receiving and has the article gotten you into any trouble yet? Well, I'll start off by saying uh, nothing I've written has gotten in, me into trouble at all. Uh, and I, I say that just because I know the CNO and the Commandant have both recently made calls for professionals to to write more and put their ideas out there. Um, so I want to make it clear to everybody, uh, I've, I've put a couple controversial things out there, intentionally so, um, and I've only gotten thoughtful uh, feedback uh, to include thoughtful disagreement. Um, but 
but so far nothing's gotten me into trouble. And I think that's partially because the, the approach I take to writing, which is, you know, I, I kick these ideas around with close colleagues. You know, we, we whiteboard them uh, sometimes literally. Um, I try them out on others and, and I look to try them out on people I know will disagree with them. Um, you know, historically, my flash to bang for, for articles is about two years from when I first start putting pen to paper to when they're, they're finally submitted and published. So giving it that sort of life cycle, make sure that my arguments have a solid foundation. I sort of discard the ones that, that aren't really worthy. Uh, and, and like this one that, that has been boiling for um, a few years now, uh, sort of build a solid foundation to it and really explore some of the dimensions that, that I think make it, as you said, uh, thought-provoking. Um, and, and I must also say that m my intention with it was also to raise hackles at least just a little bit, because I think it is a, a emotional issue for a lot of Marines. And I think that's a dimension of the challenge and, and part of my argument that I hope came across. No, I, I, you make a very good point. And I, I was sort of joking about, you know, did it get, get you any, into any trouble? And I've mentioned this on the show before. Sometimes uh, people can be reluctant to write. People in uniform will say, well, I, I, I've got ideas, but I don't know if I, I don't want to get in trouble. Um, and, and I can tell you, I've been the editor in chief of proceedings now for over five years, worked here for more than seven. And I worked on the I served on the editorial board when I was on active duty back in the 1990s. Um, I know very, very, very few people who ever got in any kind of real trouble for professional writing. In fact, what mostly happens is people get a pat on the back, even from bosses who maybe don't agree with what they've written. And they say, you know, hey, shipmate, thanks for having the courage to throw the idea out there. And then it leads to this professional discourse, which is, you know, at the heart of our motto, you know, dare to read, think, speak and write. We want to you know, encourage that professional de debate. I'll also uh, throw another word out there, which we use in, internally in, in the Naval Institute, which is the dare factor. One of the things we're always looking for is articles that have some dare, that have some edge to them, that we read and we go, oh, okay, this is going to provoke a big, a big conversation. And your article definitely did that. When we saw it, we went, all right, MCDP1, let's take it on and, and you know, see what kind of uh, uh, conversation ensues. So, so good on you for doing that. Um, so uh, talk to us about Marine Corps Doctrine Pub 1, war fighting, it's called, for our non-Marine audience. What's the gist of the publication and how important is it to the Marine Corps? It's a, it builds itself as a warfare philosophy, um, and it's, it's, really, it's really well suited to entry-level Marines, whether that's entry-level officers or entry-level NCOs, not just, be, not just because of the way it's written uh, in very easy, readable text, um, but also in the way that it approaches the subject where it really starts uh, without presumptions about what the, the reader is coming in with. So it's really well suited to somebody who's not thought deeply about war fighting as a warfighting professional. Um, and in, in that sense, it, it really accomplishes its mission. I've seen it imprint on myself, on most of the other Marines I've served with. It does a really good job indoctrinating Marines into our warfighting philosophy. And I don't mean that pejoratively. I mean that in a very positive sense. Um, so it, 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 it socializes us into the warfare profession by saying, here's what we believe about war and here's why we believe it. And it makes this, this argument about what to believe about war and why. And it does that very artfully with some historic examples. And there's a lot of critiques uh, made about it for cherry picking history. And I think those critiques are, are valid, but um, 
it's doing that for the point. And that's that's what I want to emphasize is, is, is an introductory text for what we believe about war. Um, and I think it succeeds quite well there. My critique of it picks up at that point, which is, I think it goes a little bit too far. Uh, and that, that comes from its sort of historic origins, you know, when it was written and also what, what the sources uh, of its material were. Um, it presents this very elegant narrative about how to win in conflict. Uh, and, it, and it leverages very heavily the idea of systemic collapse, that if we target the adversary's will, uh, then as a system, the adversary will simply collapse. And it's a, it's a very appealing uh, concept, especially to somebody who's new to warfare. The idea that if we're just smarter than the enemy, we can win with ease. Um, I, I think that's a, a very appealing narrative in any profession. Um, but I, I think where it falls short is it doesn't doesn't really follow through and uh, provide additional nuance for, okay, when do these ideas break down? It's a great introductory text, but you need the next text that says, okay, now that you understand the basics, let's talk about when the basics don't apply or let's add nuance to it. Um, so hopefully that gives a, a brief overview. I, I, I don't want to be overly uh, emotional about, about it, but I, I do want to convey to the audience, especially non-Marines, how it really seizes us as a service in a good way. Uh, and really, you know, Marines walk around trying to apply the concepts of MCDP-1 to everything that we do and everything that we see. We, we read about historical battles and think about, well, what is maneuverist in this battle? Or how could this battle have gone... Uh, more smoothly for one side or the other if they had applied the tenets of MCDP-1. So it really shapes us as a service for how we view war, um, which is both its strength and and my argument is uh, one of its weaknesses as well. Yeah, that's a really good point. And in, in my career, I worked, I had two Marine colonel bosses uh, in the, in the uh, Pentagon when I had a, a joint tour in the Pentagon. I worked closely with Marines a number of times uh, and, and, and I, I always admired the fact that Marines sort of had that doctrinal foundation that I think Navy folks lack to an extent, right? And I think it, it, in large part, and a lot of people have written about this much more eloquently than I'll ever be able to say it, but Navy folks tend to be technicians because we're, we're kind of platform centric. You know, we, we have to maintain ships and submarines and aircraft, and, and that is very equipment and technology centered. It just is, right? Whereas Marines, I, I think you are much more uh, well-founded and based in this warfighting doctrine. And I, I think that MCDP-1, um, to the to the points you just made about the goodness in it, um, it, it really grounds all of you in sort of a common, um, uh, the word theology comes to mind, but a, a common philosophy, warfighting philosophy, which I, I, I sort of admire. Um, uh, so, so you talk about the. I'm sorry. You you bring up the, a false di dichotomy between attrition and maneuver in the article, and you write, uh, "quote MCDP-1's preoccupation with maneuver warfare makes it a fragile document based on a single unfalsifiable theory of victory." Discuss. So, there's a few elements of this, and and I'll. I'll try to touch on all of them lightly because, as I said, I've been sitting on this article and, and trying to write it for, for a few years now, and um, there were much longer versions of the article. Let me just say that. 
So, so I think that the false dichotomy of MCDP1 is is probably it's one of its most frequent critiques, and and certainly, I, in my opinion, the most valid in that it it uh, articulates two different methods of war: attrition and maneuver. And attrition just uh, focuses on destroying the enemy's stuff. And when MCDP1 articulates this approach, it's trying to set up this dialectic between, you know, one, one the thesis, the antithesis, and, and I think it falls short in coming together with uh, the synthesis of those two. So on one side, you have attrition, which is just about destroying the enemy's stuff blindly and without consideration to intelligence or tactics or strategy. It's just if I see it, I need to destroy it, and that's how I'm going to win. And it sets up maneuver warfare as this alternative method, which is about really studying the enemy, understanding how the enemy system works, um, finding its its weaknesses. So it talks about uh, center gravity analysis and critical vulnerabilities and how we can pick apart the enemy system intellectually so that we understand where to apply highly targeted destruction fires uh, in order to make the enemy collapse systemically. Um, and to MCDP-1's credit, it it does admit that this these these two things are don't exist in a vacuum. They don't exist in their purest form ever. Um, it's just articulating these concepts at at the far end of the spectrum to give readers an understanding. I think it does that well. I think again, where it falls short is bringing those two things back together into warfare as we see it uh, in practice and and in history, where it, it gives uh, it. It, it admits that there is attrition in maneuver and there's maneuver in attrition and you can't have one without the other. But the way it sets up, uh, it's a very short document, um, but the way it sets up its argument is it it really sort of isolates those two as, as oppositional uh, ends of the spectrum. My argument is one, you know, what, what MCDP1 and many others have, have admitted before that they're not opposite ends of the spectrum that they need to, they need to interact. But my argument adds a third element, which I, I must give all credit to, to um, Amos Fox, who's a, I think he's a, a doctoral candidate now out of the army, but but wrote about this as an army major, a third method of warfare, positional warfare, where it's about gaining and maintaining a position of advantage over the enemy and using that as a defeat mechanism. So my critique of the dichotomy that MCB sets up is not that it's false, so that I do believe that's true. Uh, many people have made that case before, but that the focus on those two ends of a spectrum hide the fact that it's not really a spectrum. There's there's a third element that I think is very pertinent to uh, the conflict we face, especially in the Indo-Pacific. And if you look at what the Marine Corps is trying to do with EABO and stand-in forces, in my view, these, these concepts rely very heavily on positional warfare. And this preoccupation with the attrition versus maneuver conflict really masks that third method of warfare and hinders our ability to talk about it intelligently, uh, but also to really understand and grapple with it. And I, I want to pull out two consequences of that. Um, one very specific about the EABO debates, where a lot of the critics of EABO, Expeditionary Advanced Based Operations, um, which is the Marine Corps' concept for how we're going to support naval distributed maritime operations, is that it is not maneuverist. It doesn't uh, it doesn't hew to the MC, the tenets of maneuver warfare in MCDP one, which I think is a, a incorrect reading of MCDP one. But it premises its whole argument on the fact that whatever Marines do must be maneuverist, and this is what I really disagree with. Mm -hmm. 
and I've seen in these debates, this professional articles, podcasts, a lot of the defenders of EABO accept that premise and try to defend EABO on the premise that it is maneuverist, that it does adhere to the maneuver warfare described by MCDP-1. Um, I, I sort of reject this. I, I think it, it, it's better described by positional warfare techniques, but more importantly, it shouldn't matter what method of war a concept is. What should matter is, does the concept work in the context it's designed to, to work in? Does EABO su support DMO? Does EABO support our national strategy? And these are, the, these are the arguments that I think get hidden behind this debate about orthodoxy of, does it, does it uh, hew to what, what MCDP1 says or not? So that's the first point I'll make. The second point I'll make, and, and I'm straying to, to dangerous waters here as a Marine talking about naval strategy, Maritime operations, I, I think, are fundamentally attritional at the tactical level, and I think they're very positional at the operational level. Um, because there are no flanks on the ocean, there is no terrain to hide behind. Um, there's some nuance there. You can you can use cloud cover to mask yourself from satellites or use storms to maneuver. But uh, in the traditional ground sense, you can't uh, suppress an enemy and flank them from another side. Um, naval warfare doesn't really work like that at the tactical level. Some of these land-centric concepts that we use to understand maneuver warfare don't, don't neatly apply in the naval domain. And then when you zoom out to the operational level, a lot of naval uh, campaigning and naval conflict is about positional advantage. Where are your bases of supply? Where can you re, uh, replenish and refit uh, your, your ships, whether that's a base that, that is on an island or whether that's replenishment at sea, um, which essentially virtually moves your bases of supply further forward. So these are really about positions res respective to your logistic supplies, the adversary's logistic supplies, and how you can keep uh, a tactical attritional naval campaign from culminating. So mm. these are some ideas I've started to explore, not not as as greatly in depth as this article focuses on MCDP-1, but I, I point them out as consequences of how you view warfare uh, can really shape how you understand our role as a service in supporting naval campaigning uh, or even just uh, naval tactical engagements. Um, so this is where I really draw my conclusions about the flaws of MCDP-1 is it really hinders our ability to have these debates and discussions, which I think are extremely important at this time where we're returning to a more naval and air fight in the Indo-Pacific. And we are really looking at a uh, service concept in EABO uh, that that really relies on a better uh, intuitive understanding of, of maritime conflict. Your uh, explanation there is very nuanced and, it, and it, I, a couple of things that I was thinking about while you, while you explained that very articulately, I'll say, by the way. Thank you. Uh, one was uh, your point that positional um, warfare uh, it just reminded me of the winning article that it's also in the uh, uh, in in the November issue um, by Lieutenant Colonel Donlin about logistics, and he makes that point in his article a lot about being able to uh, position certain key supporting functions within range of the fight. Right, so he he references how far back maintenance capabilities might have to be. Uh, from the EAB, uh, uh, e, you know, the stand-in forces. So I, your, your point resonated with me with that, and we just did an interview with him last week. 
Um, and the other thing is, uh, I, I, I heard you at the front, you know, say that uh, attritional warfare and, and maneuver warfare aren't the opposites of each other. They're on a continuum. And I also understood you to say positional warfare is in that continuum, sort of between those two, uh, those two things. Did I get that correct? Uh, I, I, my understanding of it is more, it's more of a triangle. Um, okay. I think trying to apply geometry to it might, might be a step too far, but uh, I wouldn't say it's between the two, but it's, it's, uh, the, the triangle makes sense. No, that's a good, that's exactly. a better explanation for me. That, that, that solidifies it for me. Um, I also was thinking back to my days as a, uh, joint targeting officer. I went through joint targeting school and I was wondering, so, you know, in joint targeting school, a lot of, uh, it is very attritional warfare in nature because you're, you're looking at all the different capabilities and orders of battle and key nodes in the adversary's, you know, system or orders of battle, you know, and then you're, you're thinking, okay, what are the different weapons that I'm going to use and how am I going to go about targeting those capabilities that the adversary has? And then you're also, you got to do, you know, bomb damage assessment. Did I, you know, I was, I was shooting at this thing. Did I hit it? Did I destroy it? Did I functionally destroy it? So um, how does the, how does a Marine, who's in sort of indoctrinated in the good ways you said with maneuver warfare, how do you, how do you think about, you know, bomb damage assessment and about, um, you know, cause at some, at some level, you know, the Marines who are flying F-35s and, you know, trying to take out adversary fighters or, and, and things on the ground, you, you got to devolve to that at some level, right? I, I agree. And I think that I'm not, certainly not the first that that's made this point. When you get down to practice, it is uh, what Marines do, I think, is very attritional, right? At, at the end of the day, you are suppressing a target, you're dropping a bomb on something, you're trying to destroy it. You're doing a lot in the campaign to get there that is a little more elegant about maneuver or maybe feints, trying to get the adversary to think about something or trying to have attritional impacts that add up to a, uh, a sum that's greater than um, than their parts. But the argument I'm making about what you can measure and therefore what you can uh, assess over the course of a campaign comes down to not what is most important in uh, how warfare works, but what you can actually see and measure, because I think that that speaks to warfare and a specific operational approach as a theory of victory. Um, so I'll, I'll walk through that real quick. We are we design campaigns or we design battles through through whether we use the term operational approach or not, uh, trying to understand the adversary as he is or the situation or the terrain as it is and envision where we want it to be. And then we try to understand what do we need to change in the system? Again, whether that's ourselves, our position, uh, what what terrain we need to be on, the impacts we need to have on the adversary. What do we need to change to get from where we where we are to where we want to be? Along the way, this is just a theory of how we think the battle is going to unfold, whether that's a single engagement or a campaign. For that to be effective, like any scientific test, we need to measure it along the way and see, is this going to plan? And where it is not going to plan, how can we reassess so that we can adjust the plan and continue on towards our ultimate end state? So we're never laying out a roadmap that says we need to do A and then B and then C and then we'll win. We're saying we think that's the trend we need to go on, but battle is unpredictable and the enemy has a vote. So when we complete A, 
do we still think that B is the next step? How do we understand the changes we've made to the system? And I think this is where the, the concept of falsifiability becomes very important because we need to measure the system somehow, whether that's something as simple as counting tanks, uh, not to, to oversimplify the, the techniques of BDA. Um, but the, one of the points I make in the article is that counting materiel loss is, is one of the easiest things to do on the battle and battlefield in terms of measurement. How do we measure time and space advantage? Um, and and the idea that I borrow in, in my article is that these are the three things you can really meaningfully measure on a battlefield. You can measure, measure the destruction or the gain uh, of materiel. You can measure a little more loosely time advantage and space advantage, um, but that's about it. This is not to discount the importance of intangibles like will, morale, cohesion, a lot of these other terms that we talk about a lot that we, we know are very important because they're important to our own force. Um, but they're called intangibles for a reason because you can't measure them. Uh, you can try to measure them by proxy, but these measurements, I, th I think, historically tend to be somewhat unreliable. So when you look at the battlefield, not through what's most important and how does the system actually work, that is all, that is important. But when I'm conducting a campaign, I need to measure my progress so that I know how to adjust to the campaign and, and achieve my desired ends. So at the end of the day, that campaign needs to rely at least most heavily on measurable factors because that's how I'm going to say I've completed A is B the next step. If so, how are we going? Is there is there D that I now need to do that I didn't see before? So my argument isn't that will to fight is unimportant or cohesion or any of these other intangibles are not important. They certainly are. But when you're conducting a war plan, when you're saying, you know, before the war happens, here's what I need to be able to do through a certain number of phases, when you're designing an operational approach in battle, and certainly when you're assessing how you're, you're uh, progressing at the tactical, operational, strategic level, you need to measure something. And my argument is you should measure something that's measurable because uh, you're setting yourself up for uh, a lot of challenges if you select things that are extremely hard to measure. Um, and that all gets back to, I think our doctrine should provide methods of victory that are falsifiable. Let's say attritional methods destroy equipment. Here's how you should understand an enemy's equipment and the impacts it has on the system. And then we use the techniques we already have, like BDA, to assess that. Here's how to understand positional advantage in terms of time and space. Here's when it's most relevant. Here's the types of conflict where it's most useful. Here's how to understand its impact on you and the enemy. And here's how to weave this into an operational approach. And then this brings me back to maneuver warfare. If, if it's really just sort of the, the spark of creativity we apply to the measurables, because we do need to target the intangibles as well. We just know that that's not the main way we're going to be able to assess progress. Then it just becomes the spark of creativity we apply to what can be fairly described as a more technical uh, or, or technician-based approach uh, with attrition and, and positional warfare. And then you get back to the point of my article, which is if it's really just that spark of creativity, the Joint Force has a term for that, and that's operational art. And we take the means that we have, design those into ways to affect the enemy to achieve desired ends. Um, there's a creativity in that, and that's why we use the term art in operational art. Um, so I, I really talk myself into that uh, conclusion in a very roundabout way, but I think it's the logical conclusion when you start 
adding concepts like falsifiability and campaigning and assessments and planning to how we conduct warfare. Uh, and when you look at what Marines actually do on the battlefield um, with BDA and BHA, as you described, I don't think you see a lot of maneuver in that. Uh, you see a lot of attrition and some positional techniques. Mm. Uh, and I think the maneuver that you see is really the spark of creativity um, that that you apply to any campaign that makes it more than just a mechanistic approach to warfare. Wow, I feel like I've just gone to school. That was that was a very impressive answer. I've been thinking <laughs> about this for a while. Well done. No, clearly you have. You. But I, 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 wow, that was uh, that was really impressive. Uh, let's go back to MCDP one uh, for a minute. Not that we really moved away from it, but you describe in the article um, the contours of a possible rewrite of the publication of Warfighting. Um, is there a move to do that in the Marine Corps? I, I don't know that you mentioned it, but uh, in your article, it says that, you know, MCDP-1 was written in 1989. So it's 35 years old, uh, coming up on 35 years old. Um, so is there a move to re to do that? And, you know, perhaps what's missing from it now? Or what do Marines, aside from yourself, think might be missing from it at this point? So I'll caveat that by saying, you know, if if I were to rewrite it, I would I would do it in a very particular way. I, I feel like I'm on a far end of the spectrum, and I don't think it would be a particularly good rewrite um, because uh, I feel I feel strongly about the things that need to change, and I think uh, that represents my view. Um, and I'd like to think that what the Marine Corps needs is is more of that in MCDP one than exists right now, but not exclusively that. So. I think there's been a lot of dialogue that is building towards recognition that a rewrite uh, would be useful. It's hard to say whether or not one is uh, coming soon. I'm a bit pessimistic on that, especially if you look at some of the debates uh, within the Marine Corps over the last couple of years about force design. I feel like the appetite for such a radical change is not necessarily there, especially after we fought through the changes we have. Mm. Um, I know that General Neller, when he was the commandant, um, he staffed a full rewrite. Uh, mostly that was appending, as I understand it, appending sections to uh, the end of the existing document that address cyber, uh, cyberspace operations and information warfare, which I think would be good additions. Um, but it, it didn't really change the core of the text. Um, I am of the opinion that because of these inherent flaws in maneuver, which I see very strongly, but but I'm smart enough to admit that maybe I focus on them too much. It's hard for me to see a, a rewrite that really changes that without scrapping the entire document. And I think that that becomes a different conversation from rewriting it. So I won't presume whether or not we should completely rewrite it or just revise it the way General Neller um, oversaw. Now he said he he didn't get around to to pulling the trigger on that rewrite for a number of reasons. He was dealing with a number of other things that um, drew a lot of attention from the service, uh, and there was already some resistance to his Force 2025 efforts, which sort of evolved into Force Design. Um, so that his rewrite is a technique. Uh, I think there's a lot of goodness in cyberspace and information operations, because I think that is one of the places where you can most directly impact the enemy's cognitive domain, his will to fight. And that's where I think maneuver warfare as a technique is the most relevant, not necessarily in the physical domain. So I think that would be positive. 
Um, as you said, the original document was was published in 1989. It, it did get an update um, that, that tweaked some minor things, didn't really change the substance of the document, uh, I think, in the early 2000s. So the core of it is still a 1989 document. As I say in the article, it's a, it was written post-Goldwater-Nichols, but the thinking that really fed it was really pre-Goldwater-Nichols. Um, and my understanding of history is Goldwater-Nichols was law, sort of the modern joint force was law, but we didn't really know exactly what it looked like until Desert Storm. So even, even though it was published after the law was passed and the modern joint force was created, uh, nobody really understood what that looked like uh, until we, we fought a real serious campaign. So in my mind, it's pre-Goldwater-Nichols thinking where the, the services are planning to fight independently, or at least their doctrine is. So better understanding where the Marine Corps fits in the joint force would be another thing that I would add to a rewrite. Uh, what does the service uniquely provide the joint force that the other services don't? Obviously, this is you know what's in uh, uh, Title Ten of the U.S. Code that we we seize and establish uh, you know advanced naval bases for the for the um, conduct of fleet operations, et cetera. Uh, but also, I think we provide a unique joint aspect inherent to the fleet, where we can better coordinate joint fires uh, than the fleet can on its own. And when you look at the Indo-Pacific, where the fleet is really the center of the joint force, the backbone of the joint force uh, in that fight, um, its ability to leverage uh, ground fires from the Marines and Army assets, as well as air fires uh, from the Air Force, uh, and, and integrate those with the, the surface, subsurface, and air fires of the fleet. I think the Marine Corps brings a lot of expertise to that, uh, where, where we have history of that in the last 20 years. but. I think we're also one of the most inherently joint services just because we have to be because we're the smallest so we need to rely on the others so, uh, so we we understand how to integrate those better and then finally as i pointed out a little earlier a lot of maritime conflict doesn't ascribe to the same uh, principles of land warfare that come forth so strongly in mcdp1 you know, I think it's a it's a very two domains uh, centric doctrine, air and uh, land domain. And at the time, that made sense, given our adversary and given the strategic context. But as part of the naval services, as a member of the naval, as a as a naval service herself, a better articulation of maritime conflict from from the philosophy of maritime conflict down to the tactics, I think, would be more appropriate because I think we. We have a very land-centric view of warfare that comes from not just the past 20 years or so of conflict, but but from this doctrine that was written in a very land-centric time for the service. So it's a lot to put into a rewrite. Um, yeah, I will presume how we would go about that. Uh, it would be my personal preference to sort of wipe the site clean and see what we come up with. And and what I'll finish in on with this this comment is. MCDP-1, as it's currently written, is was extremely unique, and a lot of people have pointed this out, and, and there have been a couple good interviews with its principal author, John Schmidt, who, who says this himself. He, he felt like he caught lightning in a bottle with it. He didn't, didn't do it intentionally. Uh, it was sort of by accident. It was sort of the, the unique alignment of a lot of factors in the service uh, with, with military theorists, with the, the time that the joint force was in, um, and that's why it's, we've been so reluctant to change it. My view as I as I sort of conclude the article with is if we don't really truly practice the tenets of maneuver warfare as written in the document, which I don't believe that we do, I think we we focus on positional and attritional techniques, but we 
try to convince ourselves it's maneuverist. If we don't actually practice what the document teaches, we we do lose something by rewriting it, um, by sort of erasing that that unique moment in time. But if we end up with a more usable doctrine that we feel less emotional about, um, and I, I don't mean I mean emotionally in a pejorative, but also a non-pejorative way. I think there's good emotion and there's bad emotion to it. There's passion, which is good. There's emotion, which is bad. Then losing such a unique document that only socializes us to the service, but doesn't teach us how to fight, doesn't teach us how to do war fighting, which is its title, I think is is not as concerning to me. I'm, I'm willing to lose that to gain something that is maybe more usable. Um, but then, of course, we must also consider the, the value it provides in socializing Marines to our warfighting philosophy. How do we how do we capture that, but maybe shed uh, some of the baggage from maneuver warfare? That's obviously a lot to to uh, accomplish with any sort of rewrite. Um, but I, I view my contribution to that that process as as writing this article and others, throwing some ideas out there, throwing different ways to think about it, trying to tip the pendulum all the way to the other end. Uh, in the spirit of MCDP one, you know the the hypothesis, uh, the antithesis, so that you know we can come together with with a new rewrite someday that that synthesizes those two and a stronger way that that pulls from both. Well, I'm I'm in awe of the way that you pulled all those uh, things together. Uh, that was that was an, an impressive conversation, and uh, you really you really did what I asked you to do at the at the top of the show, which is it's always best when the guest talks more than the host. Um, I, I just a couple of thoughts I want to react, I, I, and I don't know that I can add anything here, but um, I will I will throw out that. In our editorial board meetings uh, over the past year or more, um, you know, you mentioned distributed maritime operations (DMO), which is a, a, a warfighting concept that the Navy is moving toward. But uh, all the Navy folks around our editorial board meetings will freely admit and have told me that uh, the you know DMO right now is kind of PowerPoint deep. And uh, I, I've told this to a number of different audiences, uh, including when I when I had the honor of, of uh, getting to talk to the TBS, uh, the basic school second lieutenants down at Quantico about every other month or so. Um, Marines are thinking uh, far ahead, and I get this gets back to I think the the warfighting ethos versus the sort of uh, technocrat ethos in in the Navy to a large extent. Marines are thinking about these issues uh, much more holistically and in greater depth uh, than, than Navy folks are, who right now I think are really fighting a lot of uh, alligators close to the canoe. They're, they're fighting particularly a lot of, uh, of maintenance issues, getting ships out of, uh, um, out of maintenance or out of uh, the construction halls uh, on time or as, as quickly as possible, uh, dealing with some you know, pretty significant op-tempo things. Um, so I would be, my, I guess my comment is that um, you know, the, the conversation that you just had here, the, the ideas that are in your article and that you just, um, you know, threw out uh, here, um, I, I would love to get more Navy folks engaged in that conversation uh, because I, I think, you know, the, the Marines are already, even if MCDP-1 requires a rewrite, you know, you have, there's a basis there. And then you've, you know, with uh, EABO and, you um, you know, some of the other uh, concepts, uh, the force design movement, uh, the Marines, I think, are are ahead of where the Navy is. And in this 
uh, in this conversation, in the thinking about war fighting, the thinking about what uh, might be required in the Western Pacific, um, we need to go to school at, at you know at your foot. <laughs> we need to have we need to be part of that conversation. But have you and other Marines help help bring the Navy sort of forward in the, in the thinking? That, that's just a thought, just a editorializing. But I'm, I'm very impressed with impressed with the article, but also impressed with the way you just um, you know said all of that so cogently and coherently. Well done. Well, thank you, and and I, you know, I'll, I'll pander to my audience here at at the moment, but uh, I'll also say that I think there's a lot there's a lot going on in the fleet, especially out here in the the Indo Pacific. Um, I, I we do a lot of work with Seventh Fleet out here um, between Three MEF and Seventh Fleet, uh, and a lot of those officers are walking around the halls with a copy of uh, Fighting the Fleet um, by Anthony Cowden, and forgetting the other author, I, I apologize. Um, and and I have gotten a lot of my understanding of how the fleet should fight from those books written by you know sailors, not not marines. Yep. Um, and by understanding how the fleet fights, better thinking about okay, what does that mean for me as the stand-in force on the ground supporting that? Um, so I've I've come away from reading those books um, with a lot of notes of okay here is my EABO playbook here's what I need to do when I'm executing this concept to support the fleet oh this is what DMO actually means I now understand it because of the principles of dispersion and then you know converging fires and forces and then dispersing again okay now I really truly understand what what in many places might be PowerPoint deep but it's these books that are helping me understand. Uh, the depth. And finally, what I'll say is I've had the pleasure and the, the honor of participating in a lot of uh, Pacific fleet uh, planning efforts out here to include the, the recent global war game. Um, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of Navy sailors thinking deeply about how do we apply the principles of this. So I'm glad to hear that. I wanted to, uh, I wanted to, uh, while you were, while you're speaking there, yeah. I was flipping through and, and listeners might've heard me flipping through the magazine, the November issue. Um, in both the editorial board and with the uh, the staff, we've talked about this particular issue um, as being one of the the meatiest or weightiest that we've put out in a, in in a while. Um, two other articles. One is to your point is uh, Rear Admiral uh, Trinke, Derek Trinke, who was the past commander of Task Force seventy six slash three, which is a combination Navy and three MEF. Um, uh, force out in the, in the Western Pacific. Um, his article is called Naval Integration in the Western Pacific and, and describes some of the things that are being done out there between 3MEF and 7th Fleet um, and how they're maneuvering around the Pacific, how they're spending time on ships and in Okinawa and in FOBs and, you know, different places and experimenting. So that's a, that's a good point. I also point out another article that I love in this, art, in this uh, issue, which is um, by Lieutenant General um, Glavy and Lieutenant General Schuttler, Marine Corps retired, um, and it's titled Designing a Force with a Fighting Foot Ashore. And it harkens back to lessons from General Vandegrift and Admiral Halsey in World War II. It is a terrific piece of applied history. So you, you, you can do no wrong by reading the November issue. It's uh, 
you know, it's got your article, it's got the three Marine, the Marine Corps essay contest winners, and then it's got those two additional pieces that uh, just get to this idea of naval integration and uh, what does it mean to, you know, to face the, the challenges that are, are currently facing our force out in the Western Pacific. All great stuff. Well, we're uh, Chris. We, I could go on for a long time here. We're, we're running short on time. Is there anything that I should have asked you, or you know, that we should have gotten to um, just briefly that uh, before we have to sign off? Uh, there's a million things, but but those are for another article and another podcast. Um, the the one thing I will uh, I would like to add is there's there's some. Bermuda Triangle-esque thing that happens with distance from this first, the first island chain. And, and when you're here, when you're planning, when you're looking at the map, you just see things differently from out here, whether you're Seventh Fleet or uh, 3MEF. Um, the world just suddenly snaps into place and you understand all of these concepts and how they apply to this specific fight more clearly uh, than you do with distance. You you see a, a, a drop off in understanding from the forces out in Hawaii a lot of the times. And that's not because they're lazy or stupid or anything like that. There's there's just something about being uh, being where the fight's going to be. And, and we all know this from our time deployed. We always talk about reach back elements and whatnot. And we all know that when when you're sitting on the ship deployed, you are you are more focused on the fight than if you were back home. Even if you're just sitting in front of the same computer, you could be sitting, you know, back at Norfolk. And the same thing is true when you go to DC. So you have all these great um, Marines, sailors, airmen, soldiers uh, looking at the problem and trying to understand it. And and I experienced this myself, knowing I was coming out to 3MEF while I was studying at SAMS, trying to understand the fight. Not a dumb guy. And it just snapped into to focus for me within weeks of being out here. So I'll say, come out here, whether that's for a duty station, whether that's for an exercise or a deployment, if you have the opportunity to come into the first island chain, you will leave with a, a much clearer idea of not just um, the fights that, that our strategy, our national strategy is preparing us for, but how to better understand these concepts or services are pursuing in terms of, okay, what does DMO actually mean for me, whether I'm a surface warfare officer or a Marine or a soldier. Um, so, so that's the one thing I would, I would add and, and leave uh, listeners with read about it, study about it, but truly there's just like any deployment or first time on a ship at sea, there's truly no substitute for, for being here for even just a few weeks or, or months for a, for an exercise. Uh, and just working through the problem, staring at a map. It, it, it's just a different perspective out here. Yeah, couldn't say it better. That's a, a wonderful point. Uh, well, we are out of time. It really has been truly great and educational for me talking with you. Uh, my guest today has been Marine Corps Major Chris Denzel. His article, Maneuver Warfare is Just Operational Art, is in the November, for, uh, the November issue of Proceedings. Chris, thanks for writing for us. And uh, I really thank you for for giving proceedings the opportunity to publish this article rather than giving it to the Gazette or you know War in the Rocks or another another out, outlet. Well, trying to be navally integrated. I, I appreciate it, and it's been an honor. Beautiful. Thank you very much. Okay, this episode is brought to you by Blue Cross Blue Shield. It's true what they say. 
A good smile is irresistible. In fact, I can't help myself from smiling right now. That's because I have Blue Cross Blue Shield FEP Dental. I pay no deductible for in-network services like fillings and root canals. Plus, my in-network preventive care is fully covered, including three cleanings a year. See what we can do for you at vcbsfepdental.com. And until next week, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute.